Welcome to your dog's best life. Okay, howdy again. It's me, Leanne, all alone again. Um, Maggie's really buried in work and Emily is pretty buried in work. And so it's just really hard getting all, all two of us or three of us clumped together at one time, even if we're doing it via the interwebs. So it's just me again. So hopefully you weren't traumatized too badly by the last time it was me again. Uh, today, so last time I spoke by myself, I went over some things and I hope I created some very actionable things for, to help you train your dog. Um, today's subject is going to see, seem a little more ethereal, but I promise you stick with me because there will be absolutely actionable things to do to help your dog, but we are going to get a little deeper into the weeds, a little geekier, but again, I think a, some of it's fun and interesting to explore. And the other part of it is it really does come down to how we can help dogs handle the world better. So stick with me through the geeky stuff. And I promise we'll get to actually how to do things to train your dog and make your dog better. So today's subject is impulse control and what that means and what we think it means when we're talking about it and kind of a little bit about how to how to deal with situations that we feel illustrate that to us that our dogs lack this magical thing called impulse control. So the first thing I think we have to talk about is we have to define our terms. So what is impulse control? Well, when we usually think of impulse control, uh, we usually look at it almost as a lack. Uh, um, we don't usually say, oh, you have impulse control. We just generally say you lack this thing. And we know what an impulsive person looks like or an impulsive dog looks like. And what that is, is that a thought occurs or a, a opportunity presents itself and the, there is an immediate reaction without intervening moment of thought for consequences or anything along, along those lines. So where we in dog training often see impulse control problems are in high arousal dogs. So those will be dogs who are easily excited. So perfect example would be the happen, happy goober golden retriever who jumps all over guests. And even though he quote unquote knows better, he, the, his excitement just gets the better of him. He's like a little kid on, on, um, can't on cotton candy rampaging around Disneyland. Uh, yes, he knows how to behave in public and he shouldn't run around like a maniac, but it's too, too much, too exciting. And his arousal is too high. And so now he lacks impulse control. We, we all get that. We arousal and impulse control kind of go hand in hand. We know that because we know that when we are faced with something in a high arousal situation, our own impulse control goes down. So as an example, you're really angry with a spouse or somebody else with whom you are able to say things perhaps that you should not. The, you think something and before you know it, it's out of your mouth. And had you not been quite so angry, had your state of arousal not been quite so high, you would not have said that thing or done that thing. So that's a perfect example of, of lacking impulse control. So Billy the Kid, my livestock guardian dog, quote unquote, knows she shouldn't jump on people. But at the same time, she just thinks people are so cool. And so you, she will come unglued and get all excited and jumpy and bouncy and happy. And 
will forget and her impulses will get the better of her and she'll jump all over people. So same thing. We often see this also as an anger management issue. And it does appear that a lack of impulse control, again, those are in air quotes, does lead to aggressive behaviors. And we see, we know what this looks like because we, we know that if we get angry, we generally process and then react, right? We, the guy cuts us off in traffic, we process it, we kind of weigh the pros and cons of our reaction. And when we don't, we don't lay on the horn or we don't pull the gun or we don't rear end them because we've, we've gone through the consequences and we've, it's occurred to us that really in the great scheme of things, getting cut off isn't the end of the world. If you lack that impulse control, that's when you pull the gun. That's when you rear in the person. That's when you lay on the horn or flip them off or start calling them names. And we see it in dogs a lot with aggression as well. And there does seem to be a correlation between dopamine rece- uh, receptors in the brain uh, dopamine is a brain chemical. We're not going to get down in the weeds on that, frankly, because I don't know enough about it to not sound like an imbecile. So we're just going to mention the word. So it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. Um, but there is a correlation between dopamine levels and impulsivity. At least we're finding, I believe that in human beings. So it, it follows that it'd be in the same in dogs because, um, we're all in the same spectrum as mammals. So So what does that tell us? So the first thing that tells us is that there is a genetic hardwired component to quote unquote impulse control. So what that means is that there could be, and possibly is, because of course we don't know if the dopamine levels are chicken and egg, right? We can't look at a newborn baby, check their dopamine levels, and then wait and see if they become, if they, if they struggle with impulse control as they age. So we don't know if dopamine levels are a reaction to this behavior that we indulge in or the reverse. So having said that, we're going to assume that dopamine is actually controlling the impulsivity. And we're going to assume that that is a genetic component. And we are going to say that because we do see kind of impulsivity in certain breeds of dogs. We don't see a lot of impulsivity, say, in English bulldogs. They're just they're just not known for flying off the handle or flying in any way, shape, or form. Uh, whereas we will see impulsivity or what we what we believe to be impulsivity in border collies or some of the herding dogs and or some of the the we just talked about a golden retriever or even my Marama sheepdog. So so there could be a, a genetic component. And I think that's worth kind of exploring just briefly is where, where does that matter? Where does genetics fall in the spectrum of helping or hindering our ability to train our dogs? So the first is that we've all heard the question of nature versus nurture, right? How much of any animal, human, whatever's behavior is genetic versus how much of it is learned? nature and nurture. And I think it's a relevant question. We know that dogs and humans, I'm going to go on a limb and say humans as well, that there is a genetic component. Um, we know this because to many behaviors, 
because as an example, Billy the Kid is my livestock guardian dog. Billy the Kid has no desire to move or herd my sheep. None at all. She will lay around with them. She'll sniff their noses, but she will not herd them. And no matter how much I train her, she will never herd them. She's not bred to herd them. Dice and my other herding dogs are bred to herd sheep, but they won't guard them. Not only are they not big enough, they don't care enough to guard them. So there is a hardwire component to breeding dogs. Otherwise, honestly, we would never would have bred dogs. So that does matter to some extent. However, having said that, there's also nature or there's also nurture. That is every single thing that happened to your dog from, honestly, from the moment of conception, when the chemicals that are circulating in the bitch's bloodstream affect how your puppy looks on life. We know if a bitch is highly anxious and has a lot to worry about when she's pregnant, her puppies will have a higher um, propensity towards anxiety-related behaviors. So there's that. And if she's anxious while she's lactating and she's raising the puppies, that will also affect how the puppies turn out. The next thing is, is how does she as a mother? I mean, there can be good dog mothers and bad dog mothers, just like they're good parents and bad parents. And a, a, a female, a dog who doesn't do a very good job raising her puppies will create anxiety riddled puppies. And there could be um, impulsivity issues in all of, all of this that I'm talking about. So that leads us to, and we have no control. We have no control over the genetics. I mean, we did when we picked out our dog, if we picked out our dog based on the genetic uh, precursors, if we looked at dog A and dog B and did all the studying and I did all that and bought a really well-bred dog, then we tried to control for that. And presumably we hoped that the bitch was well cared for and wasn't walking the streets and you know, in facing lots of fearful situations during like or during uh, pre, uh, during her pregnancy. And we also hope that she wasn't, you know, almost hit by a car during lactation. And we hope the owners did everything that they could for the puppies up until we received them at eight to 10 weeks. Having said all that, often we have very little control of that. Um, a lot of people don't go out and buy a puppy that they know has been bred from X generations for this and X generations for that and perfectly groomed and everything is perfect all the way through lactation and puppy culture and the whole thing. A lot of times we get dogs and they're just, that's what we have. That's the dog we're faced with. So Cody came to me at nine months. Dice came to me at two years. Ruby came to me at a year and a half. That's the dog I'm faced with. So Genetics are important, but I can't train them. I can't affect them. So even knowing in my mind that maybe some of the behaviors I see are genetic, I still need to know whether or not I have the ability and whether or not I have the capacity to change behavior. Well, I can't. I can change behavior. So let's look a little bit at this. So first, Let's understand how words matter. If I say that Ruby, so this is a perfect example. Ruby came to me at a year and a half and Ruby bites. So she uses her teeth and she uses aggression to build space between herself and strangers. She finds strangers very fearful. 
She also solves almost all issues with her teeth. She attacks hoses out of fun, but she's very mouthy. She, if you went to pick at her hair, like looking for a leaf or, you know, picking a, a bug out of her hair, she would wheel around and bite you. And there was no thought. There's no moment of thought between that. If she saw a ball, she would immediately go into full on, let's chase the ball mode. There was no kind of ratcheting down in, in her world. And that does lead to another component of this, which is arousal, which we talked about a little earlier, which matters. So Ruby leaves a, spends a lot of her time in a high state of arousal, which means that she's always kind of hyper alert. And Border Collies, uh, Ruby's an Australian Shepherd, but Border Collies also tend genetically to spend a lot of their time in a high state of alert. So they're always kind of already on edge. So would I say that Ruby lacks impulse control? And the answer is kind of maybe. So this is where it becomes important. If I say Ruby lacks impulse control, then what I've done is I've put the onus for Ruby's behavior onto Ruby. And I've said, essentially, you are a flawed being. This is who you are. And I'm just going to have to deal with it. I don't, as a dog trainer, I am not comfortable with that. I'm comfortable understanding that she came to me with more challenges in this realm than perhaps my other dogs did. But I also understand that impulse control can also be described as stimulus control. Now, how is that different? Impulse control is an intrinsic behavior or intrinsic description to describe a person, a personality. It's a personality trait. Oh, this kid is really smart, but they lack impulse control. Or um, my boss is fine, but then he flies off the handle for no apparent reason, which is giant parenthetical lack of imp impulse control. It puts the onus on the, them. They are that thing. They, it is who they are. It's a personality trait. And I can't change that. I, I can have very little effect on that. And it's true. I can't change an adult human being, right? I mean, that's almost impossible. Ruby's not an adult human being. Ruby's a dog. And I can't change her genetics. I can't change the way she was raised uh, from the moment that she was conceived to the moment I received her a year and a half. But what I can do is begin affecting her behavior from the moment she arrives in my house all the way through the remainder of her life. And I can train her to have stimulus control. And that can become, over time, a stand-in for impulse control. So what does stimulus control mean? So a stimulus is, a, is anything that transpires in the environment. Okay, so a cue, if I say sit, that's a stimulus. Uh, the example I usually use is a red light. So stimulus control means that if we, we've been taught, if we see a red light while we're driving, we stop. Now, what we don't do is we don't stop in the middle of the road. We go up to the light and stop there because we don't want to get honked at. And when we see a green light, we go. That's stimulus control. The lights changing our stimuli. And our control is that we start to understand that a red light always means stop. 
at the line. So it's very clearly defined in our heads. And green light always means go. So let's use the example of the golden retriever jumping all over everybody or Billy the Kid jumping all over everybody. The stimulus is a human being just <laughs> existing. That's the stimulus that causes her behavior. And if I want to apply stimulus control to that, I have to do a little bit of an examination of Billy's behavior. So let's, let's start off with why does Billy jump all over people? Well, she's, she's excited and excitement leads to bounciness. We know this because we've seen little kids, right? Excited kids aren't still. You, you don't see kids get excited and take a nap. Kids who are excited are ricocheting around like maniacs. So that's what dogs do too. A lot of dogs, most dogs. They take that excitement and they turn it into kinetic energy. It's, it's emotional energy and they turn it into movement. So we already have movement. And then we have 100 pounds of happy, goofy white dog flinging herself joyfully at you because she forgot. Oops. So the first thing I need to do is I need to change her understanding of what a human being what behavior should be placed there instead of jumping? So in Billy's case, obviously four on the floor would be helpful. I, I don't ask her to sit because again, she we've got this kinetic energy. I'm not gonna ask, I'm not gonna ask the kid ricocheting around Disneyland to go take a nap. That's not fair. That's too huge a change. But what I can ask the kid ricocheting around at Disneyland to do is lower his voice, right? Use your inside voice. So I'm just taking the energy that they've turned into kinetic energy and I'm ratcheting it down a little bit to put it within normal parameters. Or I can say, don't run around, right? Don't sprint around like a maniac and trip people. I want you to stay here, but you're going to walk with me. Or they can trot in place. I don't, you can bounce next to me. You can hop. We've all seen those kids, right? They put their feet together and they go boom, 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 like little kangaroos. That's fine because they're not tripping people. We don't care what they do with their kinetic energy if it's within the parameters that we find acceptable. So in Billy's case, the parameters that I find acceptable are keep your tootsies on the floor. That's it. You can jump on an object and I'll pet you on the object. So she can put her feet on fencing. She can put her feet on, she can jump on a, she loves jumping on hay bales. She loves that. So I'm like, okay, jump on the hay bale. Don't jump on me. She has been taught middle. So she loves middle and she knows in middle, she'll always, always get petted. So she'll come up and she'll slide in between for middle and then she gets paid. So she can start putting together the idea, okay, people means petting, but petting, which is what she wants, only happens under these circumstances. I mean, I'm, I'm running around in circles next to the person. I'll get petted. I'm between their legs. I'll get petted. I'm leaning against their legs. I'll get petted. So again, I'm not looking like I talked about in the last podcast. For me, it's not as much about position and forcing a dog to, to be in a specific position. I'm not super comfortable with that. And I want them to use that kinetic energy. So in Billy's case, she does, she runs back and forth. She goes running off. She's like, wee. And then she turns around, she runs back and you're hoping she won't collide with you because her aim isn't always great. And then she stops and you pet her. But if I asked her to sit, I would just be creating a launch pad for her to come up and nail me. So I, I'm not a big fan of, of 
imposing a fixed position on a dog who's trying to utilize and, and, dis, and disperse kinetic energy. So we, we can start there. Um, so here's another example is, so Ruby sees another human being and goes berserk barking and lunging and, and snapping. That's not charming. It doesn't, doesn't, uh, it's not a good way to make friends and influence people. So I don't want her to do that. So her, the, the stimuli in this case is a, the appearance and same as the same appearance, appearance of the human being in, in her case, which is the same as, as with Billy the kid. The behavior that I want, however, is not the behavior I'm receiving. So in, in her case, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, you see another human being, turn to me. And I will give you a treat. I will give you whatever. I'm going to train you so that just like a red light means stop, another human being means turn to me. Turn to me. I just I want her eyes off the other human being so she can't fixate on them, and then we can we can work accordingly. And obviously, the whole time I'm doing desensitization and counter conditioning and all the fancies, um, fancy training that will actually make her feel better about human beings approaching. But while she's learning to feel better about people in pro, uh, approaching, I also want her to start putting thought between stimulus and action. That's all I'm doing. I'm imposing a moment of thought. So she sees something instead of her going something equals movement or something equals action. I want her to think something equals pause. Oh, this action is a better action. And that is stimulus control and that we can train. So what I want you to look at is let's say you have a dog that you believe has impulse control. And we, we, it's one of those things that you kind of know it when you see it, right? You know, when you see a dog who's just like, oh, thought happens followed by behavior. So your terrier sees a rabbit and they take off and they forget that they're attached to a leash, right? <laughs> they take off to the end of it and they're shocked every time. So what you want to do is you want to insert a moment of thought in there and start creating a thoughtful dog. And that will help create that moment, that pause. And it's, my belief and what I've seen in other dogs is that if you can start instilling that moment of thought into one behavior and then another behavior and then another behavior, then what it does is it does generalize and our dog just becomes generally more thoughtful. So what I mean by that is impulsive control, again, is this idea that a person or a dog displays this behavioral trait under multiple scenarios, right? Ruby uh, sees a hose and she goes after it. She doesn't stop. She doesn't think. She just goes freaking berserk and goes right after the hose because she wants to attack the water. And I don't want that because believe it or not, sometimes my hand is on the hose and I don't like getting bitten by dogs, especially my own. I think that's very offensive. So I need to build a moment of thought into that. Should I go after the hose? Is this a moment I've gone after? I should go after the hose? Has, is there a cue that should tell me that it's okay to go after the hose? And instill that moment of thought. If Ruby's in the house and she sees toys on the floor, I want to instill a moment of thought. Should I bring the toy to my mom? Is that a good idea? No, because I'm not going to freaking throw it. If I see a stranger, should I lunge and bark at that person? 
if mom is picking at my fur because there's something in it, should I reach around and bite her? And the answer to all of these is no, you should not do these things. But in order for me to help her with those decisions, because I can't be proactive and know every single situation where she's going to make a poor decision on a, on the fly without, without a moment's thought, I need to start instilling that pause. Hose goes on, wait, I need to think for a moment. Oh, mom hasn't released me to chase the hose. So yes, I'll stand here and bark at it maniacally, but I'm not going to go after it because I've learned stimulus control. Hose no longer means savage psycho dog. It now means stand away from the hose and angrily bark. Now, that, is that what the end picture looks like? No, I don't want a dog angrily barking at me when I use the hose, but it's along the spectrum. It's certainly a hell of a lot better than me getting bitten, which I'm not at all keen on. So if, if I start with, if I turn on the hose, she attacks it no matter what. And now I'm at, I turn on the hose and she's thoughtful, but barking, that is a hell of the step in the right direction. If I pick up a ball and she starts, she, she starts lunging for it. Now there's a moment of, oh, wait, has she told me that this is my ball? I don't think she has. So I should wait. If she sees a dog. So this is the other issue she had when I first got her, when we would go on the ATV runs, she would attack any dog. She would get excited over aroused and run ahead and attack my other dogs. Well, that is absolutely unacceptable, unacceptable. And it's just because she's over roused and excited and she makes poor decisions in those circumstances. So the very first thing we had to do is teach her that's not appropriate. And we started with a long line on the ATV and she had to run along and she had to behave. And if she started to make that wrong decision, I was able to say, Hey, 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 don't make that wrong decision. And now you can actually see her sprint ahead just like she would before when she was going to attack another dog. And I could just say her name, Ruby. And she'd be like, Oh, I wasn't going to attack the other dog and she's not attacking the other dog. And that is the beginning of creating a dog who is more thoughtful with their behavior and generalizing stimulus control, dog running, I attack to generalizing it to impulse control. Wait a minute. I don't have to always make a choice based on the stimulus that's presented to me. I can, insert a moment of thoughtfulness in here. And it doesn't have to be a long moment, right? It can be a 10th of a second because it is really, really fast, but I can see her charging ahead when I'm on the ATV. I can see her making those decisions and I can see her veering off. And then I immediately tell her what a good dog she is because she is, she made the right decision. And that's where that comes from is my ability to capture those behaviors when they're correct and put a little bit of pressure on there when they're wrong. Um, partly because I can't always control the whole picture. Like if I turn on the hose, I'm not going to step on a leash for the whole time that I'm standing holding a hose for her. A, because I don't want her that close to me. And B, it's a pain in the ass. So it, with the hose, I have to use pressure to keep her away from the hose. Now, thankfully, she has so much drive that a little bit of pressure won't kill her. So when I say pressure, I'll just say, Ruby, knock it off. And in that kind of scary, ooh, scary voice. That's enough for her to understand that she should not be attacking the hose. And by creating a stimulus control for every one of these scenarios, it is my belief 
again, and that's all I can go with because I don't have any evidence. It is my belief that that does kind of generalize. And now she becomes less impulsive. She makes better decisions when faced with novel situations. And that's what I want. I want a dog who, when they're faced with a novel situation, and let's say their first not their first idea, like Ruby's, is aggression, I need them to insert some thought into that. Should I really be making this decision right here? Because I can't be proactive and I can't look at every single stimulus, right? I can't. That would be like if I was learning to drive and I only learned that the red light on the hanging, you know, those hanging lights, the ones that are on the cords that you're like, wow, that looks really heavy and sketchy. Let's say the only, I believe that red lights there are the only ones matter. So that means the red lights on the, on the pole that are directly attached to the pole, the red lights hanging over on the pole, none of those matter. I've not generalized at all. That doesn't help anybody, right? I mean, I'm still going to kill a lot of people by crashing through red lights. So I have to generalize that. Now, I'm a human being, and this is a very easy thing to generalize, right? They're almost impossible to confuse. But it's... It's, it's a little harder for her to generalize because I'm, I'm asking her to generalize much broader context and she's a dog. And so, and there's very little incentive. The only incentive for her to generalize is that I appreciate it more is that she gets rewarded for making those better decisions. And I think emotionally, the other thing to be fair, I don't think impulsivity is an emotionally good place to be. I don't think that people or animals who make decisions on impulse without thought are ever really happy about it. I think it's, it's not a good mental place to be. So I think calmer mental state of mind is probably healthier and feels better. So it might be the situation where it becomes generalized because it feels less shitty over time. Um, maybe being the kid who's always running around like they're at Disneyland isn't a good emotional state to be in all the time. Yes, it's exciting for a couple of minutes, but to be in that state all the time or the the kid who anytime any brush anyone brushes against them turns around to try to start a fight. That being in a constant state cuz she's in a conflicted state of mind, right? Her her emotional state is not glee like the kid at Disneyland. Her emotional state is conflict based, right? It's it's about conflict. So for her, it's like, you touched me, I'm going to bite you. I need to attack the water. I need to attack the ball. I need to chase the ball. I need to play tug with the ball. I need to bite the person. I need to bite you for touching me. There, all of this is conflict. And conflict does not generally feel good. Um, there are some dogs who dig conflict. And Ruby does like a little conflict. So to be fair, I have given her an outlet for that conflict by playing tug with her. And that way she can take her desire for conflict and put it in a place that we both find mutually um, beneficial and we find enjoyable. I love playing tug with her because she is wicked hard. You cannot get this dog off a tug toy. So it's fun. It's a great way for her to take this instinctive behavior that was hardwired into her to some extent, this desire for conflict, put it in a place where it's appropriate so she can so she can enjoy that genetic drive and, and express it. Cause I think that's very, very important for dogs. At the same time, I can tell her 
Well, you have it here, so you don't need it here. You don't need it when I'm picking through your fur. You don't need it every time I try to water plants or water livestock. You don't need it every time you see any sort of toy around. You certainly don't need it to, to lunge at other dogs because it occurred to you. So I think there's a lot to unpack here, and I may have rambled on a little too long, and my apologies if that's so. But I think it is important that we understand these concepts because then you can help your dog. And that's why we're here, right? We want to help our dogs. So if you have a dog who does something that you see is impulse related, right? You open the door and they jump all over you. Um, a guest open the door and they attack them or they go crazy barking or, oh my God, I went to visit my sister today. Her dogs are maniacs. I, I knock on the door and the dog scares the shit out of me. I, it, she has a, one of those little skinny, narrow windows right by her door. And I'm knocking innocently on the door. I can't see in the skinny window. And her, she has this like 140 pound pit mix thing. He's a happy goober most of the time, but man, you knock on that door and he lights up and he flung his whole body at the window and scared the snot out of me. I was like, whoa, shit. And, but that's impulsivity. That's, that's lack of stimulus control. That is exactly what we're talking about. That can be trained. We can train a dog that that's a cue. Again, a red light is a cue. A red light serves as a cue to tell you to stop driving, to stop at the white line. If a human, a stranger serves as a cue for Ruby to turn towards me and pay attention to me, that's a cue. That's all stimulus control is. It's a cue. And it's very hard for us sometimes to look at external events as cues. Now, some external events are very difficult to control. Okay. Um, my dogs chase vultures. Well, I can't really use it. It'd be very, very difficult for me to utilize vultures as a cue for them to say, not run off the deck. So perform any behavior other than running off the deck. So coming into the house or what have you, because I can't control vultures. So there'll be times when I'm not there to provide reinforcement, but people knocking on the door, I can control that. Right. I mean, most of the time I'm home. With, if my dog is loose in the house, I'm home. If somebody knocks on the door and I throw a boatload of treats at the door and the dog starts snarfling up the treats, I've just created a cue for the dog. Door knock equals snarfle treats off the floor. That's the beginning of a behavior that I can create. So let's use the example of my sister's, my sister's dog. My sister's dog is a, is a little bit fearful. He's got a little bit of stranger danger. Not a lot, but a little bit. And so all that, all that turns into is, and he also loves kind of other people. So he's probably got a mixed emotional bad going on. He loves strangers, but they're kind of scary. So he's like, ah, so he goes berserk and my sister, her other dogs do the same thing. So every time she, he barks or the door knocks, she throws treats on the floor. Right. And you're like, well, isn't she giving rewards for that? Right. Isn't that rewarding the barking behavior? Well, here's the thing. If you don't say yes, right. We've talked about marker rewards before, or marker words before. If we're not marking the behavior, then the behavior is non-contingent on, or the, the rewards are non-contingent on the behavior. Now that's a really fancy way of saying, we don't care what the hell a dog is doing. We are simply throwing treats. So what happens is the dog has to stop flinging itself maniacally at the door and barking its head off to get to the treats. So we've just created a behavior. 
The behavior is snarfling on the food for treats, on the floor for treats. Now, dogs are efficient. And if we don't create, if we don't create fear for the dog or excitement for the dog. So let's say we go outside, we knock on the door, but no one comes in. That's the important thing. You have to control that aspect of it. So the door no longer becomes a trigger for either scary critters coming in, right? Stranger danger, or becoming a trigger for exciting new people. So if that no longer becomes a cue for the entrance of a scary person or an exciting person, there's no longer a person involved at all. Now it simply becomes a cue for treats on the floor. We can quickly turn that into, okay, now every time the door knocks, anytime somebody knocks on the door, the dog runs to the door and starts sniffling around the floor. Well, that's already progress. We're already a thousand times better than scratching the shit out of the door, flinging itself at glass and barking its idiot head off, right? Now we can take that and we can shape it. Let's say our dog is fearful or too excited. Both of those can easily be problematic at the door. So we now take that dog, we take those kibbles, the dog runs to the door. Instead, we say, look, we have a handful of kibbles and we run like idiots to their crate two rooms away. We put them in the crate and we close both doors. Then we open the door. Now what's happened is the door, somebody knocking at a door is a cue to go run to your crate. And we've changed the entire dynamic of the door knock from this fraught thing with people yelling at the dog, right? I'm sure that owners of dogs like that don't just say, oh, it's okay, right? I, my sister yelled, hey, knock it off. And she had to grab dogs. And it was, it was complete pandemonium and chaos. And it's not a lifestyle that I would want to live with a bunch of very large dogs hammering away at my door. You've turned all of that chaos and arousal. Again, a lot of this has to do with arousal states, right? So if this dog's super excited and he's big and he's kind of a goofus and he's in a high arousal straight state, again, what does that do to our impulse control? So if our dog is a little bit fearful, a little bit stranger dangery, but normally he's really good. And let's say somebody walks in the door and they, he just doesn't like the look of him for the, whatever reason that day. That's when a dog bite happens. That's when that, oh my God, he's never done that before. That's exactly when that happens because the impulse control is, has gone down because the arousal state has gone up because a dog is in a state of high arousal because they've flung themselves at the door and they've practiced this behavior multiple times. So what we do instead is we get rid of all that bullshit at the door. We get rid of the chaos and the pandemonium and the insanity. And we turn that into quiet sniffling along the floor for treats. That's already more relaxing. If the treat, if the floor happens to be carpeting and they have to use their nose instead of their eyes, that creates optimism. There's research to, that shows that sniffing and scent work creates optimism in dogs. We know it's calming for dogs. So now you've taken all this rowdy, crazy shit and we've calmed it down a little bit, right? We've taken it down like three or four notches. Then we take it and we put it in another room far away. So now they aren't being confronted with strangers at the door who are either scary or too exciting for words. They're no longer in this ridiculous arousal state that will cause their impulses, their impulse control to de deteriorate and them to make poor decisions. We've taken all that out of the picture. Now what we have is a person knocks on the door, the dog goes, aha, a Kong toy is going to be in my crate. I'll meet you there. And you go into the other room and you drop a Kong toy in the crate, you close that door, you close the next door so there's no visual anything, and you've got calm in your house. And again, it's notice this is not a failure of the dog. 
right? I never, never at any of this point have I said my sister's dog, there's something wrong with him. I've never said he lacks impulse control. I've said that this is a training scenario. This is a training problem and she can train her way out of it. And that puts it back on us, the human being. We can solve this problem with training. And by keeping the arousal from going through the roof, we can help him make better decisions because he's in a better emotional state. So now that he can, maybe he comes out later when he's calmer and she can then do food satters on the floor with him on a leash or whatever to make him safe around strangers. And that's everything that all has to do with your dog. So, you know, if you have a goofy dog like Billy the Kid, you bring her on a leash because you don't want her smashing strangers. You food scatter on the floor and let her settle down around strangers. Let her get over that first bit of kinetic energy on a leash, under control, without that heightened state of arousal. So now they're in a more thoughtful place. That's where we gain control over our impulses, is if we're thinking. So if we can lower our dog's arousal, if we can create stimulus control, and again, stimulus is the thing that's external that tells the dog how to behave. If we can, can change that, if we can change that picture and help teach our dog, if you see X, Y always happens. If you see Y, do behavior Z. If you see a stranger, turn to me. If the hose goes on, don't attack it. Do this instead. And so I don't, and again, this instead can be anything. You can train a specific behavior. Again, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of that just because I'm lazy, but for a lot of people that can be very effective. A place command exists for thousands of trainers for a reason. It's a very easy, very reliable system to put a dog in a safe place. So you simply treat the shit out of the dog for being in a place until it's so magnetic that the dog loves to be there and you say place. And now the dog can be in place and you can hose the plants down. Or in Ruby's case, I'll, I'll take that middle ground where she's barking like an idiot, but not attacking the hose. And then I actually reward her with the hose. So because we always have to remember that rewards have to be available. If the dog's not being rewarded for correct behavior, then there's no reason for them to do it, especially if there are already established things that they find rewarding, right? If our dog goes rushing to the door because they love strangers and a stranger comes in, they've been rewarded for that behavior. If they rush to the door because they're terrified of strangers and they want to chase them away and the UPS guy comes, gives you a box and walks away, then that dog has been rewarded by that person leaving. So there's a reward history for all of these behaviors. Jumping on people, they get attention, right? Good attention, bad attention, attention. Doesn't matter. Dogs don't care. Billy loves when I scream, when my husband screams, Billy, get off of me. Well, he just said her name. There's a little dopamine rush right there. Wee, he loves me. So... Yes, I think it's important that we understand what we're saying when we say these things. But to me, the important part is, yes, understand that your dog may have come with some different wiring. That doesn't mean it's broken. And it doesn't mean it cannot be fixed, right? If I have, Ruby is a very, very tough dog. Ruby has a lot of, came with a lot of behavioral issues, a lot of them. And almost all of them stemmed from this one issue of, any stimulus led to behavior. And generally the behavior was aggression of some kind, laying teeth on something, other people, other dogs, uh, toys, whatever. And so, yes, I need to, I need to deal with the fact that Ruby is, is a much 
higher drive, higher arousal dog. She spends a lot more time in that higher arousal state than say the two border collies who are sleeping at my feet during this whole conversation, not playing with squeaky toys. I'll have you know. So yes, she came with different wiring, but that's not an excuse to walk away. It's not an excuse to write her off. It's not an excuse to put it on her, say she has no impulse control and, and just simply say that's who she is. That's not fair. Because again, I don't think it's a good emotional state for her to be in. I don't think that's a place mentally where we want to spend time. And I don't think it's fair to leave our dogs in a mental state where they shouldn't really be spending time. If you feel like you have to take care of every situation, like if every stimulus means that you need to defend yourself with teeth, that's got to suck right? That's the person who has bars on their windows and locks their door every time they come and go and, and, you know, owns 50 guns and is just constantly worried. Well, I can't imagine. I don't want to live like that. I can't imagine how that must feel. And I certainly don't want my dogs living like that. I don't want my dogs to think that any stranger they need to defend themselves against. That's my job. My job is to say, it's a stranger. You can look at me and I will keep this stranger away from you. So, Again, we got a little bit deep into the weeds on this. Uh, we talked a little bit about some more ephemeral ideas, but I hope that we brought it back down to reality for you and, and we can give you some very specific insights on how to, how to deal with these situations and how to look at them from, go from a, this is a, a failing of the dog to this is a failing of, of the trainer. And I'm not saying that we're failures as trainers. I'm saying, if it's a training problem, we can fix it. If it's a dog problem, that's harder to fix, right? I can't fix genetics. I can't fix the way the dog was raised. I can't fix how Ruby was raised from birth to year and a half. I can't fix that. What I can do is fix the dog in front of me. And I've, I have, I've been working on it. Now, is it immediate? No. Is it super fast? No. Is it fast enough for me? Yes. And honestly, the speed that it takes is how much energy and time you put into it. If I put more time into Ruby, she'd be further along. If I lived in the city where she saw more people, she'd be further along. Part of it is the fact that I live on top of a mountain. And so she doesn't get a lot of places to practice not being stranger dangery. So we all have the choices to make. And, but I hope that you understand how Putting a label on a dog is not as helpful as whoopsie, whoopsie. Um, putting a label on a dog is not as helpful as putting a label on a behavior and then fixing the behavior. Okay, I want to say thank you to our listener and please rate, review, share, subscribe. I got all four of them right. <laughs> have a good one. And again, hopefully we'll see you next week and hopefully we'll have Maggie or Emily back with us. Thanks a lot. Have a good one.